This Wellness Couch podcast proudly brought to you by the Wellness Base Camp in Perth, our first ever event in WA. This Saturday, April 6th at the Royal Perth Yacht Club featuring some of your favourite Wellness Couch podcasters. For last minute tickets and all info, go to thewellnessbasecamp.com. The Real Food Real is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their Healthy Kitchen Oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness and optimising your health, metabolism and longevity. While you're tuning in to today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In today's episode of The Real Food Real, we are joined by our regular guest, Dr. Damien Christoph, to expand on last week's discussion and explore the impact of our food choices on learning, behavior, cognition, and mental health. You will learn practical strategies for which foods when and what to consider when introducing new foods to your child. We hope this empowers you to create change and help us to turn the current health crisis in Australia upside down. Hello, Damo, and welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Steph. It's always a pleasure to be on air with you. I love it. Always love our chat. So we've got a really interesting topic today, very topical, as you and I were discussing off air, and I guess an extension of a previous episode, a conversation I had with our very good friend, Kale Brock, about the state of yeah. our children's health in countries like Australia. So I really wanted to mm. chat with you about this topic being so significant, but also so timely. Yeah, it is really timely, isn't it? Because um, you, you may have chatted with Kale about this report that came out that suggested that about 99% of all Australian children uh, uh, don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. And that's a profound statistic. It basically means that children in Australia aren't eating five vegetables and two fruits a day. They can't even get that in. And then, you know, we look at the the new guidelines that have just come out from the Eat Lancet Commission that suggests that we should all be eating more plants and no animal product, uh, no animal protein, um, you know, severely limiting it. And we go, well, there's a huge communication gap there that, you know, in one hand we say we can't meet it and then the next hand we're, you know, suggesting that 
that's all you should eat, which is the stuff that the kids don't want to eat in the first place. So um, there's a real conundrum. There's a real problem. Yeah. I mean, the stats are crazy. When you hear 99%, that's shocking. Um, But further, when you break down to how lenient the guidelines are, you know, we're not asking for nine cups of vegetables a day in in these kids. (laughs) But as you say, we're not even achieving the baseline. So let's talk about the significance of that. Like it's a big topic, but in terms of like our nutrition and our cognitive function, you know, let's, let's connect the dots and, and what, what are we seeing as a result of, of poor nutrition? Well, I think uh, part of the problem is, is that the recommendations are highly geared towards processed carbohydrates. And I, I don't want to bang on about the food pyramid because obviously that's changed now and it's, it's now a circle. And so it's kind of like a, my portion plate. Actually, no, they changed it again, didn't they? They changed the pyramid and they, they made fruits, vegetables now probably in terms of nutrition Australia suggests now that you should have more fruits and vegetables than processed grains and seeds. So that's a, that's a good move. But our traditional mind or our habitual mind uh, tends to lean towards processed carbohydrates as the way in which you might start the day. Processed carbohydrates in the way in which you might pull together a salad at lunchtime in, say, a sandwich or a roll. And then processed carbohydrates you might pair with meat in the evening, say, with spag bol. Um, and then potentially more processed carbohydrates in between, like biscuits and dip or um, chips, you know, packets of chips, uh, you know, as snacks. Um, and then maybe even some ice cream for dessert. So when you look at that sort of lifestyle, that sort of nutritious intake, which is, you know, very, very common in today's society and particularly uh, with our junior population, with children, you know, being, I suppose, deemed to be fussy and adults being deemed to be, I suppose, time poor and not necessarily able to take the time to create the right meals or educate the children as to what they should be eating, we're seeing that children are significantly deficient in essential fatty acids. And uh, the essential fatty acids that they're essentially that they're deficient in are the raw types of essential fatty acids like your omega-3s, your omega-6s and your omega-9s. Now, we don't want to have the cooked omega-6s or the cooked omega-9s and preferably and preferentially you'd rather have raw omega-3 fatty acid as well, but that should come from fish um, and, not, and not from, you know, only flaxseed or not from only, you know, plant sources. It's difficult for humans to convert it. So there's that, but then there's also the saturated fat component and children as their brains are developing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger, in fact, our brain is never as big as what it is when we're about seven to 10 years old. I think that's the, the largest that our brain ever gets um, in terms of synapses. And that's, that requires saturated fat to be consumed, uh, consumed. And, and so does the hormone cascade in the body. So in order for men to become men and women to become women um, and for all of our gonads to develop, we actually need to be able to manufacture hormones and that requires saturated fat. So, if we don't eat saturated fat, then we'll make saturated fat. We'll make saturated fat from the carbohydrates that we consume. And generally, that's a poorer quality and not as good for our body. Yeah, so true. I mean, the ramifications of that are going to be like the inflammatory cascade, which we know is obviously the, the exact um, opposite of that internal environment that we're trying to create. And, you know, I think we've got to acknowledge that carbohydrates and fats generally sit on this seesaw so if we're eating lots of carbohydrates then naturally we're not able to consume 
enough or an adequate volume of our omega-3s or our saturated fats, as you say. And looking at what the brain is predominantly made of and the role that these nutrients have for cognitive function, like it can actually be no surprise that we're seeing behavioural and learning difficulties greater than ever. Well, that's it, Steph. And, you know, we, we're constantly seeing a barrage of children being diagnosed um, or maybe it's just labelled with conditions, so whether it be an attention deficit or whether it be uh, being on the spectrum or whatever else. There's, a, there's an enormous amount of, uh, of children being di- diagnosed with a, um, a neurological disease. Now, I didn't call it a mental health condition because it, it's different to a mental health condition. A mental health condition might include you know, depression or insomnia or psychosis or something like that as opposed to a behavioral disorder or a concentration disorder or you know, even autism, for example, which they're not mental health per se, they're actually neurological problems. But they're so interrelated in that the, the development of the nervous system is largely uh, governed by the type of and the quality of uh, the fat that we put into our body. So it's, it's so important, plus also stimulation. So one of the things that we learned in, uh, in college when we were studying with chiropractors is that the nervous system requires three things only. Uh, one, it requires um, stimulation. Two, it requires oxygen. And three, it requires um, fuel. Mm. And so primarily, uh, fuel, as we get older and older and older, almost needs to be simpler and simpler and simpler. Now, that doesn't mean that it's got to be carbohydrates. It just means that it's got to be uh, fuel that's easy to access uh, for the nervous system. Um, and as children... Uh, when we're growing up, the best fuel for the nervous system and the best fuel for our brains is, in fact, saturated fat. So mm-hmm. we, we really do need it. And when there's an injury to the brain or when there's an injury to the nervous system, we need more omega-3 fat. We don't need more carbohydrate. We need omega-3 fats um, in order to you know, help repair those sorts of things. So there's a deficiency of those fuels and nutrients going into our body um, with our current lifestyle, with our current diet, and, and that's a real big concern. And, and there's, I think... Further concern to that, the mental health conditions that we're faced with with our young children and adolescents is quite profound. And uh, there's a huge problem in Australia where, uh, in fact, I'm, a, I'm aware of um, both friends and family of mine that have had children with serious mental health uh, issues. Uh, and I know of some people that have had um, their child uh, at the age of eight or nine years old be diagnosed with um, anorexia. And now that's a, a pretty serious neurological disorder um, and mental health, sorry, not neurological, mental health disorder um, that really requires intervention. And whether or not that stems from poor nutrition or whether or not it stems from other interventions that may have occurred in, in these children um, over the years, it, it's very, very difficult to say. But what we're seeing is a massive escalation in chronic mental health uh, disease. Uh, in our children to the extent that some of these children are taking their own lives or putting their future at, at risk by having, you know, in developing eating disorders, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and it's very multi-layered and it's not a really simple, easy fix, but we've got to consider that this is a problem in Australia and maybe we could start with just making sure that our kids are eating better food. Yeah, like that's obviously, you know, quite an extreme example, but it's the reality. And I think we've got to acknowledge 
where it starts to support our brain and, and mental health and naturally our, our gut health, the production of neurotransmitters, that whole communication highway that we have between the brain and the gut, you know, our beautiful vagus nerve. Like it's not kind of, you know, it's not a simple issue to be dealing with, but absolutely if we acknowledge the foundation of real food, like I'm even thinking that at a top level, what difference that can make for blood sugar control and learning and, and you know, that cognitive function that we keep coming back to because, you know, if we're, if we're eating a traditional Australian breakfast, the poor teachers are dealing with the ramifications of a blood sugar crash at, I don't know, 9am or, or when they, <laughs> when they land right. at their desk. Um, this is nothing to say for some of the, yeah, really, really heartbreaking issues that we're also seeing in children as young as eight, as you say. Horrendous. Mm. Horrendous, yeah. That's right. And look, it, it may not be the fixer, but I'm sure that it would actually make the problem easier to manage you know if we took out one of the factors that could be contributing to it that might be malnutrition whether it's an excess of certain nutrients that the body doesn't require or it's a deficiency or an insufficiency of nutrients that the body really does require if we can nail that and sort that out through getting food better then that'd be great but one of the things that we see in australia at the moment is that we're spending more and more money on bigger and bigger hospitals that have more and more beds for children and for me I, I bash my head and I think, what are we doing wrong that we need bigger and bigger hospitals and more and more beds for children? Like we must be doing something seriously wrong if our children are getting that sick that fast that we can't get them better and we've got to keep them in a hospital. Does that make sense to you, Steph? Well, no, it doesn't. It's heartbreaking. But, I mean, obviously, having been in this space for not as long as you, Damo, but coming up to a decade, you know, we only need to turn around in, you know, our local community to see the disaster that we've got in in the status of the health. And unfortunately, I'm no longer surprised. It doesn't change the significance of the issue, though, and that clearly we've been doing something wrong. Like, you and I aren't here trying to say that, you know, eating your five and two is going to solve everything. But there's no magic pill. If I had one, I'd give it to everybody. I can tell you that right now. We've got to come back to these foundations. But I am a big believer in looking at the past few years or five decades because we've fucked up in the West. Pardon the French for anyone with children listening at this point in time. I should have warned you. We have <laughs> I nearly fell off for shit. Yeah, I know. Look, it's my show and I, I do apologise for my F-bomb. I'll do whatever I want to do. <laughs> No, no. We have. We've completely we've completely had it back to front, upside down, and we're paying for it as a result. So, you know, acknowledging that is the first step, but also taking the power back and stop being the sheep that are, you know, you know, blindfolded and, and fed rubbish. It's gotta stop. Mm, yeah, I agree. So I think, Steph, that we do have to start at a grassroots level and mm. um, you know, I I, th- I don't know necessarily yet how best to go about it. Obviously, you know, you and I have been pioneers, I suppose, in the media space, you know, with this, with regards to just podcasting. You know, podcasting, the wellness guy has been going for eight years. We've been trying to educate people Mm -hmm. and it it kind of gets to a certain level. We saw our friend Paleo Pete um, get shot down in the media, um, even to the extent that George Columbaris chose not to speak about um, eating healthy food. You know, look at the transformation of George from when he first started on MasterChef all the way to through where he is now in terms of he's a much more healthy person than what mm-hmm. he used to be. 
Um, and even Pete, you know, Pete was overweight, unhappy, unfit, unhealthy, all that sort of stuff. And then he went, changed his diet and lifestyle significantly around. And instead of actually embracing that and asking questions in Australia, we shot them both down and said, yeah. you guys are going against convention. Uh, you guys are outliers. You guys are kooky, wacky, crazy. And, uh, and so anything or anybody who tries to do something that's slightly different either doesn't get the airplay or, you know, is belittled and made to look a little bit crazy. And, uh, and that's a, a big problem that we've got in Australia. It's, I think I've spoken about this a number of times where not only is it a tall poppy issue, is that we're very polarising in Australia, we're very black or white, good or bad, wrong or right. And, uh, and the challenge with that is that, that we don't actually see some of that creativeness or that beauty of what actually exists between the two colours. It's kind of like the notes in music. You know, if you look at Ebony and Ivory, Ivory on a piano, all of the music and all of the sound comes between the keys and, and, and in the pauses we get the rhythm. So we've got to be really mindful of just taking time to look around and explore what else there actually is rather than actually going, oh, dogma, I'll go down with that. Or, oh, more dogma, I'll, I'll stay with that as well. So I'd, I'd ask that in conversations with people, all of your listeners, Steph, actually have, a, have an opportunity to say, hang on a second, why don't you look at it from another angle rather than actually just being black or white about it? Yeah, I mean, it is absolutely shades of grey. I totally agree. And I think, you know, we could talk about the significance of the issue, but I, I also think that, you know, most people are aware of that, um, even just with the conversation that we've been having around the, the lack of vegetable consumption, what I would love for you to share with us is um, the more practical steps or um, education pieces that you'd maybe talk to parents about in clinic or in the work that you do. Like what, what would be maybe some warning signs that parents could firstly acknowledge that maybe something needs to change from a nutrition standpoint and then we'll move on to some more practical advice from there. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's two things to consider here. One is the timing of when you bring food into your child's life um, mm -hmm. and then how do you do that? I think, you know, which foods when is a really um, important conversation to have. And, mm. Yeah, the consideration of what you might bring in, like if you're handing your child a little... Um, teething rusk and it's made from some kind of a grain. I don't know what they're made of. What are these teething rusks? Usually rice. Right. Okay. Yeah. If that's what you're feeding your child, that's the flavor they're going to get used to and that's what they're going to be looking for. So everything you do with your child is a learned behavior. It's not programmed. So just because you're fussy doesn't mean your child has to be fussy. Um, just mm -hmm. because you don't like pumpkin doesn't mean your child doesn't like pumpkin, if you know what I mean. So it, it might be that instead of, passing on your limitations in your diet, you expose your child to all foods um, and continually expose them to all foods with the exclusion of foods that they probably are going to saturate themselves in when they become a teenager. You know, the best thing you could ever do for your child is to make sure that they eat really well at a young age. And so some great friends of mine, um, Marcus and Georgia Yo, have a gorgeous little girl, Elkie, and they feed her, you know, she's what, two and a half now, but from when she started going on solids, they gave her the real food, like the whole food. Mm. The great thing about giving her the whole food was that she started to experience the textures, the idea of chewing. Um, she learned to swallow appropriately. And if you go back 150 years, there was nothing to mash up food. There was nothing really to mince it up. It was just that you had to just break into little pieces and let children get used to it. And it takes time. But I've seen Elkie grow up uh, eating everything, like everything. And then when they go to trade food, 
she will now say, you can have this spinach leaf and I'll have that piece of pumpkin. Or mm-hmm. you can have, you know, I don't want you to have this spinach leaf because I want the spinach leaves. Um, you can't have the pine nut because it's mine or whatever else. Or you can have this pine nut as long as I can have those last three. And she's quite advanced um, compared to many other children. And that is, they're the words that she would use since she's only like two and a half. So she's got this, you know, quite incredible brain. But I think that's got a number of, there's a few things that have actually occurred there. One is that she's had incredible nutrition from a young age. Uh, the second thing is that there's been time to sit down and eat. I think that's really important. Like literally sitting down and eating um, breakfast, lunch, and dinner with your children, explaining what the foods are, what they do for you, you know, for you, what's happening on the inside when you're eating those foods, uh, and so that there's a real picture. Children are imaginative; they they like to have stories and like to, you know, create with their brains different scenarios, imagination. That's what that's called, and so uh, you can actually work with that and and teach them about what food is actually doing. Uh, and how it's nourishing the gut, for example, or, you know, nourishing the brain. So there's the type of food you introduce, there's the time that you take, and then there's the encouragement to continue to eat great food all the time. So when they're hungry, the only choices that they've got are healthy foods. So that later on when they grow up and they're exposed to parties or they go around to their mate's house or they go somewhere else, they're less likely to pick out um, on, on the rubbishy stuff and they and even if they did at least their foundations have been great and they'll come back to the good stuff later on mm, so fascinating and just as you were chatting i was um just rethinking are those teething rusts made from rice there are quite a lot that are made from pretty much wheat and skim milk powder so then the question is, is that the right food for the child to be first exposed to? And as you say, like, you know, what they're given is what their taste buds become accustomed to. Like, without having yet had a child and had to go through the feeding process, of course, um, you know, I'll have my own experience to share at some point very soon. But to me, I just think it makes so much more sense to start with a whole food and, you know, look at how can I start with these fruits and vegetables that maybe I'm going to otherwise get into a bit of a pickle trying to introduce later on when I've been feeding, you know, refined carbohydrates and food with lots of ingredients and fortified nutrients that are essentially a fake version of a whole food. So it's just, I think, looking at things through a different lens Hundred percent. I agree. I agree. Uh, it's there'll be there'll be times, and let's just you know be upfront about this. There'll be times when it's ridiculously challenging. Mm-hmm. You know, even with Jackson, um, as he was growing up, uh, and he ate everything. There was a point in his life where he ate everything. It didn't matter what it was. Didn't matter where it came from. He ate everything. So we just ensured that it was always the best quality stuff, and that's just what he ate. Um, and he didn't know anything different. And it wasn't really until he started going to parties at um, primary school that he started to get exposed to things that would be questionable and maybe things that you may choose to not feed your children but we might have got away with say 40 years ago 30 or 40 years ago Um, but these days with a you know broader knowledge base around food and nutrition we we try not to give our children those sorts of foods so including sugar etc etc but there was times as Jackson developed that he just went off certain things so when he got braces to fix his you know his crooked teeth um 
he just didn't want to have certain foods that he had to chew lots of um, because it would get stuck in his braces and he found himself gagging or it would get stuck in his plate that was, you know, his retainer. And so as a result of that, he would gag and it would cause him to vomit and then he'd be nauseous and he didn't want to have his food anymore. So you had to work around that and try to find creative ways that you can encourage him to eat those sorts of foods. And, um, and then he's come back to them because that's the food that he used to eat. So where he never, he, he didn't eat kale for a little bit or he didn't eat rocket for a little bit or he didn't eat spinach for a little bit, he's now back eating all those sorts of foods because he used to eat it when he was little. That, they're the flavours, that's the palate that he grew up with and so now he's easily able to get back into it. However, if we had to start eating him on a, a white diet, so white rice, um, processed cereals, bread, uh, and so on and so forth. If all we gave him was white stuff and processed grain and carbohydrate um, all the way through all of his meals as he was growing up, then what we might have found is as he grew up, we might have actually found that he wouldn't have been able to handle the different flavours and textures of the fruits mm-hmm. and vegetables. So it's better to start him young than to start him late when you've got more time. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think there's obviously guidelines that we can give you in terms of which food when. But I also think that it's nice to be able to be given the freedom to experiment. Like some of the guidelines in Australia are very much like the rice cereal and the, you know, the, I won't carry on with the guidelines again, but I think we become quite regimented and we expect this child to fit into like this small category, which may not work for them. Whereas when you're given some options to introduce at the right time frame, there's a bit of flexibility and I think it can then be quite individualised, which means that you're not going to try and always put up a fight because, yeah, it's going to be challenging um, but not pushing the proverbial uphill all the time by trying to follow these black and white guidelines. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there will be a subset of children out there, Steph, that people will come into contact with where they may seem like they're really fussy children, but they actually suffer from a a mental health condition known as ARFID. It's an eating disorder. Um, And I I was exposed to this watching a documentary on on SBS. Well, actually, it was on the plane. And and ARFID is basically a food avoidance thing, and it's a fear of food. It's like arachnophobia. where you know people are scared of spiders, or, or what's the what's the snake one when you're scared of snakes? It's that sort of mm. fear, um, you know, of food. And so these kids will only eat like highly processed food or stuff that doesn't really have a flavour. So you know those those uh, those children affected by that condition, um, I suppose, fall into a very different category, and they they need psychological help. So where there's a fear of it as opposed to an avoidance of it. Um, there's, a, there's a big difference there. And so if you're listening to this and you know of somebody with ARFID or you think that maybe your child's got ARFID, then it, it might be worth actually investigating because it can, it can lead to some very, very serious nutritional deficiencies that can result in blindness, infertility, um, and a whole host of other things as well. So get that sorted out. Wow. Yeah, not, not easy, but definitely, you know, a lot, to, a lot to navigate. But also I think that lens to come back to is that we really should be starting with whole foods. Um, mm. I'm looking forward to avocado being my number one food for baby Northeast very soon. Absolutely. Well, not very soon, but... <laughs> well, kind of very soon. Well, yeah, very soon we'll when, uh, baby Northeast will be out. And then, uh-huh. you know, maybe in 12 months' time, we could be talking about the foods that you're going to be starting to introduce. It's kind of yeah, interesting. Yeah, I know. 
Stay tuned. Um, but what about in terms of what would you give advice as to avoid at least to start? Oh, I, the the word avoid makes me cringe a little bit. I know. Instead. I just cringe. I know, I I know the intention. <laughs> no, I know the intention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the intention of it is to say, okay, well, why don't you just hold those foods off? and then use these foods first. I'd rather we looked at the foods that we might implement or bring into the diet. And really you want to start with savory foods first and mm-hmm. start with vegetables. Um, and the reason why I want to start with vegetables and, you know, ideally they should be, you know, cooked, uh, easy to digest. Um, and just be aware that your baby is probably going to get smelly poos and it's probably going to start being gassy and may even get a little bit of constipation and possibly might also get some griping pain. This is a normal process for the introduction of different types of fibres, different types of carbohydrates and different types of proteins going into the body. So just be mindful of what the symptoms are, but some discomfort with foods like, you know, you know that we're, what we're about to suggest and what you might actually you know, integrate into your child's diet. These foods will take a little bit of time to... Um, navigate through the gastrointestinal tract and it will take the body a little bit of time to get used to the introduction of these different types of foods coming through it. And in particular, the microbiome and the bacteria uh, may actually take a little bit of time. Now, this this can be uh, further um, challenging when there's been foods that have been rich in sugar um, introduced really early in the child's life. Um, And so certain types of bottled formulas uh, contain quite a lot of sugar and sugar from corn syrup, for example, or sugar from rice malt syrup or sugar from sources that, you know, aren't, you know, it's, it's not really the stuff that um, children grow on. Well, they grow, but they don't develop properly from. They just grow out and grow big. And so mm-hmm. it's, well, it's widely recognised that a bottled-fed baby is um, of more solid build, more robust build, um, than a, a breastfed, exclusively breastfed baby. Uh, and, and that's because of the way in which the nutrient profile is of the bottle and then also the supply of the food. So um, the breast can only supply as much as the breast can you know, produce, whereas a, an adult can manufacture as much bottle food as, uh, as what they like. You know, if they're trying to get the baby to sleep more, then they'll give it more food. But uh, that's really probably not wise for the baby's brain. So, well... When we come off milk, um, you know, preferably it's breast milk. If you're able, if you've been able to do that, then great. If you haven't been able to do that, when you come off bottle milk or bottle formula, you know, milk, then the key thing is to try as hard as you possibly can to introduce vegetables into the diet, not the ones that would cause gas like um, cabbage and cauliflower uh, and, and broccoli and those sorts of things. Start with things that are simple, like pumpkin and sweet potato and carrot and mashed peas. Uh, and, and those sorts of, you know, vegetables so that the flavour profiles and then the textures become familiar. Um, and, and, then you, and then you graduate from there. Like you, you continue to expose your baby to the vast plant kingdom that we've got with grains being later on down the track, not earlier on in the piece. Yeah, great advice and just really mindful with going back to what you said before about the digestive response. Like obviously the baby's been hopefully exclusively fed one food for some time so it is important that you bring in single foods and we usually say sort of five to seven days apart so rather than adding in small amounts of lots of different foods, 
that you start with one and that way you get time for that sort of assimilation and adjustment to that new food, um, especially from a gut health point of view, as that, that will change as new foods come into the piece. Absolutely. And we saw that in the gut maybe too. Like, you know, even as an adult, uh, within a couple of days, a whole food diet can actually impact the gut so significantly positively that it's hard to conceive that it actually takes place. So we saw the gut maybe when Kale went to um, Namibia, let's just say Africa, was it Namibia? Yes, correct. Yes, <laughs> far out, I should know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he went there and in only six days or seven days of eating um, this African diet, his whole microbiome significantly changed in terms of its diversity. Uh, we will see that that will cause uh, challenge in a developing gastrointestinal system. So just be patient with it. Watch it. Um, there'll be some diarrhea. There'll be some constipation. There'll be some gas and some bloating. There'll be some crying. There could be some vomiting. doesn't mean that your child's allergic to it um, necessarily. It, it just means that you, your baby is trying to get used to it. That's all it is. Yeah, there's that. And I think also, you know, testing when they're ready for solids. Like, you know, some babies um, definitely show signs of being interested in solids at about six months. But then if they, you know, get the food in the mouth and spit it back out again, you know, I think it's very easy to to rule that food out or to feel a little bit stressed or overwhelmed about that. But firstly, it could definitely be that it's a little bit too early to bring that food in. And so if you're really passionate about it being that food, you know, which I think like a pumpkin or an avocado or something could be really good, um, you can come back to that in a couple of weeks and just work out when the baby's ready because it's not a timeline. It's not a fixed 12 months that's going to apply to everyone. So, you know, I think just being a little bit fluid within those guidelines can be really helpful. Well, I think part of the guidelines that are also a little bit confusing too, Steph, is that um, people are encouraged now to give their child uh, food, uh, solid food from I think is it four months? Uh, so it's quite early now, like the, mm. you know, earlier than where there might be a tight gastrointestinal membrane. So um, I think it's got a bit to do with the introduction of proteins and the presentation of proteins to the immune system to kind of coincide with other interventions. And um, you know, I, I think that the introduction as the immune system is developing of different types of proteins at different stages is really important. But I, I think that introducing proteins to a infant's you know body when the gastrointestinal membrane isn't yet fully formed and isn't fully functional and the immune system still quite immature um, I think is you know potentially fraught with danger I think that we should be waiting as long as we possibly can before we move on to solids but your baby will give you signals like the baby will be watching you eat and going hmm, what's going on there with mum what's she eating and, mm-hmm. and and then you know your baby will actually open his or her mouth wanting some of that food as well. And you can give them a little bit of that food just to taste it. It's not necessarily that they're ready to eat it. They're just probably ready to try and go, ah, oh, what, what is that? Oh, I might try some of that too. And they'll think it's really strange because it's a different texture because it's not milk. Um, and they've got a, it's got, you know, funny little bits on it and it's, it's gritty and it's got a strong flavor. Like all of those things they'll go through and they'll spit out their first few mouthfuls. There's no doubt about it. But when you start to introduce it to your child, it's, it's probably more going to be very, very soft and very, very mashed up. But when they look at you eating food, they're learning that that's probably where their next step is and that's where the next meal is going to be coming from in, you know, a short period of time. 
Yeah, for sure. And just going back, like I, I won't use the word avoid again, like do forgive me, but I, I do think it's important to acknowledge there are foods that we really need to be mindful of in, in the first um, year or so. And that's why, you know, eggs are usually one of the last to come in, like not so much the yolk, of course, but the egg white, that, that, that's the, um, that sort of almost allergenic piece from a protein point of view that can cause issues when the gastrointestinal tract is not um, quite developed. Um, I think the same can be said for certain foods. Like, I mean, I hope this is obvious, but things like nuts and seeds or anything with a choking hazard, we obviously have to be really mindful of, which is why it's nice to start with, you know, slow cooked mash and um, things that are quite soft and and the right texture. So just keeping in mind that there, there are a few other things to consider. I mean, honey is generally off until 12 months, any sweeteners, I would hope, <laughs> things like that. Mm. Mm, totally, totally, <laughs> absolutely. There's no doubt about it that your child's sweet taste buds are very, they're developed very, very early. And so they'll be able to pick up the sweetness in any food. So the foods that you might think are very savory, your child will actually think are quite sweet. And so if you educate your child that a carrot is sweet or peas are sweet or corn is sweet or whatever else it is that you're going to feed your child and, and they feel that sweetness, they can pick it up because they're developing that part of their taste bud. Um, if you can show them that savoury foods are sweet, then when they get to fruit, fruit, like from a sweet perspective, it will be uber sweet. And so that if they do get exposed to lollies and they do get exposed to processed sugars later on, those things will be so sweet it will actually blow their taste buds off their tongue, mm. not literally. But like they'll just be so they'll say this is too sweet, Mum. I can't have it. I don't like it. Um, which is the the best net result you get is that your child would reject processed food. And uh, and and the way in which you could assist that in taking place is to ensure that they get exposed to plain, bland foods, not with sauces, not with you know lots of different flavors and condiments on the side. They just need the vegetables. They just need the proteins um, and the good quality fats, just to ensure that. Uh, that's where their their fa- their flavour profile is developed from. Awesome, such great advice. Love it. I think we can really start with those foundations and make such a huge difference from an early age. And I can't wait to see those stats change. You know, all of our kids in Australia eating their five serves of veggies and their two serves of fruit every day. So. Hopefully it won't be too long and people like you are doing all the work to get the information out there, Damo. So thank you again for your time and your knowledge. It was great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me back, Steph. I do love coming on and good luck over the next few weeks, Steph. I know there's a big thing about to happen. And I, I must remind you that I broke the news and, uh, and I know that we've only got a couple of weeks to go. So I wish you all the best. <laughs> Thank you so much. I um, off air. I we were chatting about some babysitting duties. I'm already thinking about handing it away. No, I'm only kidding. But <laughs> at least I know it will be in good hands. <laughs> yeah, I'll take great care of little Northeast for sure. <laughs> Thanks, David. Chat soon. See you, Steph. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real.
This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.